0: As you read the New Testament, have you run across some things you wish Jesus had never said? You know, it would be so much easier if there weren't some of these things in the Scriptures. Jesus said some very difficult things as he taught about his kingdom and how those who lived in his kingdom were to live their lives. You know, there are things that sometimes they're hard because they just go against the grain of our natural instincts and our desires. To be honest, some of the things he says, we just don't want to do. Or they're hard, they're difficult. And we're not even sure that we can do them if we wanted to do them. You know, to the human mind, some of these things just don't make sense. And so I think Christians often cruise by or just fly over them without wrestling about their meaning and implications We're going to tackle five such statements beginning today with Jesus teaching that we are to love our enemies. Again, we'll have time at the end for uh, comments and questions and clarifications, and every once in a while you'll see a slide pop up with Pastor Chris's contact information. That's for your use today. Not this week if you don't like something about him, but today if you've got some comments here. Love your enemies. Why would Jesus say that? What, what, what did he really mean? What, what lies behind the statement that he said? There's actually parallel passages in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. So if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, if you want to grab a Bible in front of you, page, uh, page 1030. Matthew, chapter 5. I'm going to start reading in that chapter at verse 43. 43. You just follow along. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then go two books over to the Gospel of Luke. And Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. I'm going to start reading at verse 27. Jesus said, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so you should do to them. and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Now the first thing we have to note is that this teaching is intended for (coughs) interpersonal relations, not international relations. These are not guidelines for conducting foreign policy. We have to be very careful when we take Jesus' teaching on how we're to relate to other individuals and then apply them indiscriminately to other situations for which they're not intended. Again, Jesus is teaching kingdom principles for those that were living under his rule, under his reign. They happen in the context of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. In Jesus' day, there was a common saying, hate those who hate you? Now that might have developed out of an old old Testament passage of, for example, Psalm one thirty nine, where King David says, "Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies." Some people just feel justified hating their enemies. And when they do that, in their minds, it shows that they believe in right and wrong. And they refuse to tolerate those who do evil. And there's a sense in which that seems like the right thing to do. There's an element that seems respectable. It seems honorable. And this was the mindset of some of the folks in Jesus' day. Love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. And when you do that, they reasoned you honor God. But see, what they're doing is they're adding to God's word. They're perverting what he had to say. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that you are to hate your enemy. And In fact, God gave this command to his people in Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Remember, this is one of two commandments that Jesus said were the greatest. One day, a lawyer tested Jesus by asking which of all the commandments were the greatest. You know what? He didn't really want to know the answer to that. What he was trying to do was trying to pit one proponent of Scripture against another proponent of the Scripture. But Jesus answered and he said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. These two commandments depend the law and the prophets. And there's a word picture here in the language of the New Testament. It's, it's, it's like driving two spikes into the wall and draping the law and the prophets over them. They all hang upon these two things, love God and love others. And to those who would say, hate your enemy, Jesus says, hold on a minute. You need to love your enemy. So who's my enemy? I I suppose we would include on our list those who oppose us. Uh, it, It might include those who are different from us, those who don't like us or are antagonistic toward us, those who wish us ill. You know, maybe your list is more extensive than that. There may be names and faces coming to mind when we talk about enemies here. Uh, Dictionary.com defines enemy in this way. A person who feels hatred for, fosters harmful designs against, or engages in antagonistic activities against another, an adversary, an opponent. I think we tend to use the term quite broadly. Uh, You know, it isn't just the person that we perceive who intends to do us harm. It's been used of anyone who holds a different view from the one that we hold. There's a lot of talk today in the body politic that identifies others as political enemies. And unfortunately, we've seen a fair degree of hatred across the political spectrum, across both aisles. But Jesus says we're to love our enemy. What does that mean? Let's start with this thought. Love is not primarily a feeling. It is and action. And so in the Luke passage, Jesus says, do good, bless, pray for. In Matthew, it's love them, pray for them, greet them. You see, the kind of love that Jesus is talking about is what we identify as agape love. The kind of love that God loves with. New Testament scholar William Barclay explains agape love this way. If we regard a person with agape love, it means that no matter what that person does to us, no matter how he treats us, no matter if he insults us or injures us or grieves us, we will never allow any bitterness against him to invade our hearts. But we'll regard him with that unconquerable benevolence and goodwill which will seek nothing but his highest good. Love means that I act toward that other person, even my enemy, in a loving way, with actions that seek the best for that person. Now, this is important. It doesn't mean that I abandon the truth or that I in any way condone their attitudes or actions. It does mean that I don't retaliate. I don't seek revenge or seek to damage or to destroy them. It means that I reject the old adage, don't get mad, get even. How many personal feuds could be ended and broken relationships mended if someone would choose to break the cycle of anger and retaliation and ill will? A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Chris spoke of how the Old Testament character Joseph chose just that thing, chose to break the cycle of dysfunction within his family. Anger and revenge and retaliation against his brothers would have been expected, anticipated. I think, honestly, we could even say deserved. But he chose differently. In the most significant way, Loving our enemies means to imitate Jesus. Just look sometime how he loved those who were even his enemy. I think one of the classic examples is in the upper room when Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his disciples. Even here, knowing that he was about to be betrayed, he reached out to his betrayer, Judas. When you read the account of the Last Supper in John's Gospel, it seems clear that Judas was in a position in which Jesus could speak to him privately without all the other guys listening in. In that day and in that culture, men reclined around low tables. You know, forget the famous Da Vinci painting of the Last Supper. You know, the one where someone shouted, Hey, everybody get on this side of the table for the picture. That's not what they did. They most likely reclined at tables that were in a horseshoe as they sort of laid down a little bit on the table and the person next to them. Back to Judas. For Judas to be reclining so Jesus might have a private word with him, there's only one place where he could have been sitting and that would be to Jesus' left. We know from the Gospel account that the Apostle John is sitting at Jesus' right. The revealing thing about this is that the place to the left of the host was the place of highest honor. It was kept for the most intimate friend. And when the meal began, Jesus must have said to Judas, Judas, come and sit beside me here tonight. I want to talk specially with you. More than that, for the host to offer the guest a special tidbit, a special morsel from the dish was again a sign of special relationship. In the Old Testament book of Ruth, we read that when Boaz wanted to show how much he honored Ruth, he invited her to come and to dip her morsel into the wine. So when Jesus hands this morsel to Judas, again, it's a mark of special friendship, affection. And again and again to the very end, Jesus is reaching out to Judas, loving Judas, wooing him as a friend, even though he would end up being an enemy. In January 1978, Newsweek magazine carried the story of the memorial service (coughs) held for former Vice President of the United States, Hubert Humphreys, on January 16. Hundreds of people from all over the world came to say goodbye to their old friend and colleague. But one person who came was shunned and ignored by virtually everyone there. Nobody would look at him, much less speak to him. That person was disgraced former President Richard Nixon. Not long before, he'd gone through the shame and infamy of Watergate. And he was now back in Washington for the first time since his resignation from the presidency. Two remarkable things that you need to know about that event. First is when Humphrey knew that he had just a few weeks to live, he did something that stunned Republicans and Democrats alike. He called Nixon and invited him to his upcoming funeral. And he told him that if anyone questioned why he was there, he was to say that he was there at the personal request of Hubert Humphrey. A second remarkable and very special thing happened. President Jimmy Carter, who was in the White House at that time, came into the room. And before he was seated, he saw Nixon over against the wall, all by himself. He went over to Nixon as though he were greeting a family member, and he stuck out his hand to the former president, and he smiled broadly. And to the surprise of everyone there, the two of them embraced each other. And Carter said, Welcome home, Mr. President. Welcome home. One president to another, from different parties. But they understood what they had in common. They knew the burdens that they shared in common, being elected presidents. Commenting on that, Newsweek magazine asserted, "You i quote, if there was a turning point in Nixon's long ordeal in the wilderness, it was at that moment and that gesture of love and compassion. Political enemies, they were. Reaching out to Nixon wasn't a vote-getter, but Jimmy Carter was a committed Christian, and he took seriously Jesus' statement, love your enemies. Let's go at this from a whole different angle. You know, we should be able to relate to Jesus' statement in another far more significant way because, you see, we too have been enemies. Enemies of God. That's what the Bible teaches. Would you turn in your Bible to the book of Romans, chapter 5? If you've got the Seedback Bible, page 1198. Romans, chapter 5. To me, this chapter is one of the greatest chapters in all the New Testament. At the beginning of it, it's really dealing with the benefits that one has when God declares you to be not guilty because of believing in Jesus. But I want you to look at this in Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 6. Paul writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? In the book of Ephesians, Paul writes that at that time when we were enemies of God, we were objects of God's wrath. And yet, God loved us. He loved us so much that he acted towards us in a loving way by sending his Son to die for us. So you see, to love your enemy is to act the way God acts. He loved us even when we were his enemy. It doesn't mean that he excused our sin. It doesn't mean that his wrath didn't rest upon us. But it means that he acted in our best interests, providing a way of salvation. So there are some implications. Keep going in Romans to chapter 12. Paul, now in this very practical section of this letter, If we respond in kind to our enemy, we become just like them. God says vengeance belongs to him. Listen, we can never do to our enemies what God will eventually do to them apart from their repentance. I always remember Bill Bright, founder of Crew. uh, I remember when opponents were just criticizing him mercilessly His response was, God will do worse things to them than I could ever do. And he just entrusted himself into God, who ultimately vindicates right and justice. See, another danger that we face in this matter is that we allow bitterness to settle into our hearts. The way to guard against that is to be quick to forgive. In Ephesians 4.32, Paul says we're to forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us. That's the model. Think about Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now We've talked a lot about forgiveness. Remember, forgiveness means to release a debt. Dwight Carlson, in his book, Overcoming Hurts and Anger, writes, forgiveness means we actively choose to give up our grudge despite the severity of the injustice done to us. I can only forgive my enemy if I choose to love him or her with Christ's love. Someone once wrote, we pardon to the degree that we love. And it comes down to a choice. Corey Ten Boom, some of you have read some of her writings, I'm sure. Uh, along with her sister Betsy and other family members, helped many Jews escape the Holocaust by hiding them in their home. They were caught. Corey and Betsy were sent eventually to the Ravensbrück concentration camp. Betsy died on December 16, 1944. 15 days later, Corey was released. Afterwards, she was told that her release was due to a clerical error and that a week later, all of the women in her age group were sent to the gas chambers. Listen to this experience of hers that she writes after the war. It was in a church in Munich that I saw. A balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands, People were filing out of the basement room where I'd just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I'd come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood in silence, in silence collected their wraps, in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the other. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the room, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp, where we'd been sent, and now he was in front of me, hand thrust out, a fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoke so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was my, the first time since my release that I'd been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again the hand came out, Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven, could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives is a prior condition, that we forgive those who've injured us. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I'd had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And yet I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Love, forgiveness. When we come to these hard things that Jesus says, it forces us back to some important realities. Let me suggest three. We'll we'll come back to them time and again in this series, and it's this. God is good. I'm not. God is wise. I'm not. God is sovereign. I'm not. If we grasp what Jesus is saying to us here, what it calls for is a submission to him as Lord in our lives. It calls for obedience to him as the master of our lives. And when we do that, the power of Christ is at work in us. And he, through the indwelling spirit, empowers us to do what we cannot do on our own. Is there someone in your life who you identify as an enemy this morning? Based on his word, what does God want you to do about it? How does he want you to think about that person? How does he want you to act towards them? Would you decide today to put aside any grudges you might be holding? If you don't, you risk becoming a bitter, angry, unforgiving, unloving person. And if you know Christ, you risk God's discipline in your life. You must choose. You can do what Jesus says to do. To quote again the words of Cory Ten Boom, forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Why? Because we choose to love, act in a loving way toward those who might even be our enemies. Would you pray with me? Father, this is a hard teaching. There are people often in our lives that we don't like. It's really hard to love them. But would you motivate us, instruct us, teach us, inspire us by your word and by your Holy Spirit to obey your teaching? That we would choose to act in a loving way toward our enemies because, you see, even if we disagree with them, And we know that we're right. The best thing we can do is to love them toward that rightness. Would you empower us, Lord, to live according to your word the way that you want us to live? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.